0: Thanks, Gordon. After I had been away for a long time, I came to my senses (laughs) and I said to myself, I will return to Windsor and I will say to the church secretary, church secretary, I have been associating with all kinds of people in Europe. Lutherans, Orthodox, Catholics, Baptists, and I am no longer worthy to be called an Irish Baptist. I will come and sit in the pew as a as a visitor. And while I was a long way off, Tim saw me and fell on my neck and kissed me. No, sorry, no, no, no. I don't want to destroy your reputation. He might fall on Alison's neck, but he didn't fall on my neck. Um, while I was still a long way off, I receive an email that says, "Come and preach." the foolishness of grace. (laughs) It's really nice to be home. There's much in our world that is wondrous and beautiful, and if you get the opportunity to travel at all, never mind around this wonderful country. You see much that inspires you and lifts your spirits, but there's also a great deal of trauma, and as you travel around the world, you don't have to travel too far to find it. You don't have to travel too far around this community, to find it. And as you watch on the television screens and you watch what's happening in West Africa with Ebola, what's happening in Ukraine and has been happening there, you think of the people that you know, maybe your own circumstances of family crisis, of health crisis, of financial crisis. We think of ISIS running riot in Syria and Iraq. There is a great deal of trauma in our world. And I'd like to read a few verses this morning from Exodus chapter 17, uh, which you'll find on page 75 of the Bibles that's in the pew, Exodus chapter 17, (coughs) and to read the first seven verses. Exodus 17. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The recent pictures of minority groups in Iraq fleeing to the mountains should give us some idea of what the Hebrew people were going through in Exodus 17. Back in August, Time magazine carried this headline, Be Captured and Killed or Risk Dying of Thirst? The Awful Choice Facing the Refugees of Sinjar Province. And this is exactly what was happening in Sinjar, which is probably not actually unlike what was happening many centuries ago, back in Exodus 17, where the people with their livestock were in a desert place. These people fleeing from those who were coming to take their lives, take their homes, take their livestock. And in the country's far northwest, tens of thousands of people Uh, were fleeing to the mountains where they were trapped for days without water or supplies. Like the exodus in the desert, they carried with them whatever they had and whatever they could. And undoubtedly, the long trails of people that climbed the mountains of Sinjar province, driven by fear, experienced exactly the same kind of trauma as the people in Exodus chapter 17, who find themselves in a desert without water, which for those of us who live in this country is impossible to imagine. It is impossible to imagine the heat. It is impossible to imagine what it must be like to be there without water. Men, women, and children, refugees primarily from the country's Yazidi religious sect, and they began to die from dehydration and exposure with no relief in sight and nowhere else to go because when you're on the top of a mountain, there is nowhere else to go. And children were weak with exhaustion as it must have been for the people of Exodus chapter 17. And when they tackle Moses, they tackle Moses because they're desperate. You don't live very long in the desert Without water. And in Exodus uh, chapter 17, as we read together, water comes from the rock. Fortunately, for some of the people from Sinjar province, stuck in the mountains in Iraq, there were huge aeroplanes that could be filled with supplies and water and materials that could be dropped to them at night to give some relief or some help. But not all survived. And many people have died on that mountain. The thing that strikes me about the passage that we read together in Exodus chapter 17 is not the miracle, but the question at the end. The question that people were asking is the Lord among us or not? It's a very legitimate question. Their knowledge of the Lord, of Yahweh, was only weeks, months, a few years old. They'd never heard of him before. They'd never known God by this name until Moses appeared on the scene. And I'm sure they were left asking the question, was it really the Lord Yahweh who had delivered them from Egypt? Or was it just circumstances Were they just fortunate that the plagues happened to happen? Did they just happen to be lucky and get away? Or was Yahweh real? Is the Lord among us or not? Why are we now here in the desert with our children? Dying of thirst and losing our livestock. And I wonder how many of the Yazidi sect, how many Muslims, how many Christians... And others of different persuasions have been asking the same question over recent weeks as they flee their homes in Syria and in Iraq, as they camp on the border of Turkey, as they climb the mountains in the hope of getting away from those who pursue them, seeking to eradicate them. Around the same time as these people were heading to the mountains, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, was commenting raising the plight of Christian communities in Iraq and Syria, speaking about the forced exodus in northern Iraq as part of an evil pattern of Christians being persecuted for their faith. He said, We must not forget that this is part of an evil pattern around the world where Christians and other minorities are being killed and persecuted for their faith. We must continue to cry to God for peace and justice and security throughout the world. Those suffering such appalling treatment in Iraq are especially in my prayers at this time, he said. Let me ask you, what were you doing Tuesday of the week that has just gone past? Can you reflect back and just think about Tuesday? I find it very difficult sometimes to remember the days of the week, never mind what I was doing that far back. It seems a long time ago. Tuesday, what was I doing on Tuesday? Oh, it was a stormy day. I was down in Moira at the Baptist Center. That's what I was doing on Tuesday. What were you doing? Well, whatever you were doing, the same thing was happening on the same mountain in the same province. Look at the date which I put in red, Tuesday the 21st. People were still being hounded on the mountain. So whatever shelter you were taking from the storm here, they are taking from the storm that pursues them to eradicate them and to destroy them. And the stories are absolutely horrendous. And many people must still be asking, is the Lord among us or not? Is there a God at all? Or if there is a God, what kind of God is it who could explain why my children, why my family, why my livestock, why my people are suffering like this And you might be asking exactly the same question. I don't know your circumstances. Christians fleeing in the Middle East, trying to come to terms with bereavement. People sitting in refugee camps or mountainsides, suffering from thirst and now cold as the winter sets in. Or the family that loses a child. The husband or wife who lose a partner. The person struggling with serious illness or with bankruptcy or false accusations, there are many stressful situations which sometimes lead people to ask, is the Lord among us or not? It's a fair question. And for the people in Exodus 17, the answer came in the form of fresh water out of a rock, a dramatic and powerful sign. And the use of Moses' staff was a visual link and reminder of the deliverance from Egypt, a connection so that they could understand that the same staff controlled by the same Lord that brought them out of Egypt was the same staff that was still with them and brought water from the rock in the middle of the desert place. The same Lord who was with them then is with them now. But where is the water from the rock in Sinjar province? In Aleppo, in Donetsk, in Liberia. Well, let's jump forward from Exodus 17 and turn 1,500 years into the future and leave the desert behind to a very different situation, but not without its troubles. Because the Apostle Paul is writing, and the Apostle Paul is writing from prison, And he's an old man at this stage. Prison must have been hard on him. And it's clear from the opening of the letter to Philippians that life wasn't easy. That just as he was in prison, there were others who were trying to make life even more difficult for him. He's hopeful, he says in this letter, that he'll be released, but there's absolutely no guarantee. But Let's hear some of what he has to say to the Christians in Philippi as he writes to them from prison. It's page 1179 in the copies of the Bible in the pew, and it's Philippians chapter 2. So here, prisoner Paul, older man, struggling, uncertain about his future, writes If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Despite the circumstances that Paul finds himself in, he exhorts and encourages the Philippine Christians to remain firm in their faith, be like-minded, love one another, be one in spirit, not selfish or conceited, but be humble, look to each other's needs and the needs of others. This remarkable passage where he sets out the wonder of Christ's humility is a familiar passage to many. But the thing that strikes me about this passage is what he says at the beginning and what he says at the end. He talks about if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. If any comfort from his love. If any fellowship with the Spirit. And at the end of the passage in uh, verse 13, if you go on just a little further. He talks about how for it is God who works in you to will and to act to his good purpose. And the thing I want you to notice this morning is not to try and unpack all the issues of Philippians too, but it is to notice this, which is very typical of what happens in the whole of the New Testament, is to notice the radical change in language from Exodus chapter 17 to the New Testament as a whole demonstrated here in Philippians. The language is now about being united with Christ, fellowship with the Spirit, about God working in you. The language in the New Testament for the people of God shifts to being in Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He talks in Romans 8 about the Spirit of God lives in you. And the language of the New Testament shifts dramatically from the idea of the Lord being among his people to the people being in Christ. In the Old Testament, for the Hebrew people, their experience of God was always in terms of the Lord being present among them. The signs in the early days out of Egypt, like water from the rock, the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. And then the tabernacle, the place where God resided. And then the temple and the desolation of the people when the temple was destroyed. There was always a sign. There was always a place. There was always something that assured them that the Lord was among them. Or not, as the case might be. But the New Testament language is completely different. Now the people of God are in Christ. They are in fellowship with the Spirit. And the idea of asking the question, is the Lord among us, doesn't actually make sense anymore in a New Testament context. Because now the people of God are caught up in the life of God in Christ in fellowship with the Spirit. So there is no need for particular signs. And really, in one sense, there is no need to question because the death and the resurrection of Christ has totally changed everything. For now it is possible to be adopted into the family of God, to be in Christ, to be in fellowship with the Spirit, to be indwelled by the Spirit. Recently, um, I was at a, Conference, the council meetings of the European Baptist Federation in Bucharest, and there was a group of people um, who were sharing their experiences and, and giving us some insight to what God was doing. This is three of them. They were from Syria, from Jordan, from Iraq, the Baptist pastor in Baghdad, uh, from Lebanon, from Turkey, from Egypt, from Palestine, from Israel. These weren't missionary folks, these were all people who live there it's their home and it was really interesting because despite the traumatic circumstances in which many of them live they speak with great hope and such a positive tone the guy on the top there and the top left is a pastor from Turkey who for many years and I think still does lives with armed guard because of his witness to Christ as he pastors a church the guy on the right Uh, runs a major agency, which some of you will have heard of um, in the past when uh, one of our folks was out in Lebanon, Nabil Kosta, uh, manages and organises not just an educational institution, but a massive relief effort for displaced Syrians, Muslims, Christians, whatever. And Eli Haddad, uh, these are guys who live in this part of the world. And it was humbling to hear them speak, but what was particularly striking that was far from being disillusioned and fearful. They were full of hope, of confidence, because of this deep conviction that the Lord is among them because they are in Christ. And hearing them speak about their conviction that their calling is to be in the Middle East, and to stay in the Middle East, and to be part of the future of the Middle East, was challenging in the light of so much else that is happening and the experiences of so many people. It doesn't mean that there aren't dark times and that these guys haven't seen very dark times times of violence, of loss, of doubt, of difficulty, of despair, but the solid conviction of what it means to be in Christ drives hope, confidence, a vocation. That is truly inspirational. And I've never forgotten something that a Nigerian pastor shared with us at IBTS in Prague. He was working uh, in an area where there was a certain measure of threat from uh, Boko Haram and in a difficult context. And he ministered to his people in these terms. He said that in times of difficulty, the question we need to learn to ask is not Where is or where are you, God, or is the Lord among us? The question we need to learn to ask is Lord, why are we here? You and me. Lord, why are you and us as your people here together in these circumstances? What is the purpose? What is to be learned? what is to be achieved through this difficulty. And the change of question is important because it transforms how we see the world, how we see our own world and our own difficulties and challenges. So as we move from Exodus 17 into the New Testament, the, the shift of perspective is massive. But there's something else about the contrast between Exodus 17 and Philippines 2. In Exodus, the people need a sign in Philippines, the people are the sign. In Exodus, they need water. They need help. They need a sign that God is on their side, that they can trust Him. They need water. In Philippines, the Christians are called to be like Christ and, in that way, to be a sign to the world around them, concerned not just with their own interests, but the interests of others. And as Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 15 and 16, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose so that you may shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. The change from Exodus 17 to Philippians 2 is dramatic. No longer need we ask, is the Lord among us? The reality is we are in Christ. But when the people around us ask, is the Lord among us? The answer is yes, because we are here. The Lord is present in his world through his people, through his church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are the aroma of Christ to the world. He talks about how we are Christ's ambassadors charged with the ministry of reconciliation And when we begin to think this way, it really reshapes our understanding of why our behavior, our attitudes, and our actions and responses matter so much. When people around us ask, is the Lord among us? The answer is yes, we are. Because we, you, are the signs and witnesses of God's presence in the world. I have to confess that that idea scares me. I don't really want to believe it. I don't really want the responsibility. But if I accept the privilege of being in Christ. I can't very well turn down the responsibility that comes with it. To be living meaningful sign. Of the Lord's presence in the world. So in a world that is troubled. And experiencing trauma. You are the water from the rock. You are the relief in a thirsty land. You are the signs of hope that God has placed in this world for the hopeless. You are the ones who are to shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. What does that mean in practice? It means that some of you sitting here in this room will be, or maybe are being, called to leave this place and to go and live in a different place. And to be the hands and feet of Jesus among the refugees, among the poor. And it may be that God is already planting that in somebody's heart and somebody's life at this time. But there is a call that needs to be heard, a call for a new generation, a new community of people to rise up from within the church and from within the West and be willing and be available for the mission agencies and the relief agencies that seek to be Christ in these different parts of the world. So in practice this means that some from those of us sitting in this room are maybe being called to go and be the stars that shine in the universe in the dark places of the world. And I don't know whether that's you. I don't know what God may have been doing in your life or saying but if it is you, hear the call and respond and take up the vocation. Will you be those who are going to be the water from the rock for the sick, for the refugee, for the children deprived of education, or the family that is living in temporary accommodation somewhere to let them know that the Lord is among us? I want you to hear this message as a challenge, not just about being nice to your work colleagues tomorrow. But it might be about leaving your work colleagues and heading off to the refugee camps, to the hospitals, to the schools, to the aid agencies around the world. Because that's what this means in practice. And I recognize it's always going to be a minority who are called to go. The rest of us can dig into our wallets. Because let's not fool ourselves. People can't eat prayer. Prayer doesn't keep the refugee warm in the winter. I've pushed the wrong button there, sorry. Tents, clothes, food and equipment do that. And there are many agencies like Tear Fund and others who are helping in these difficult situations. On Tuesday at the event that will be here on Tuesday night with Tony Peck and John Upton, we'll have an offering at the end, and the offering at the end will be for the Baptist World Aid Ebola appeal because money matters. And we might not be the ones who have on our hearts a call of God to actually go and work in the refugee camps, but there is a call of God on our resources. I'm involved with an organisation based in the States which this week has launched a fund to raise $25 million, particularly for the Christian communities and the other minority communities of Iraq and Syria. Because the winter is coming. To provide support, to provide winterized tents and accommodation, to provide food, to provide support. To help them stay in that place. To document what is happening. To tell the stories of the atrocities and to tell the stories of hope and kindness that are also part of that difficult situation. So that in years to come it will be possible for there to be justice and for people to return home. $25 million sounds like an awful lot. But in terms of what we have in this world, it's very, very little. So the practice of being the water from the rock, which we are called to be as the people who are in Christ, affects all of us. May God give us the grace to respond.